Welcome to today's episode of the PQI podcast. Today I talk with Dallas Laurie and Ken Lynch. Dallas has been an oncology nurse at UCLA Medical Center since 2014. She recently graduated with her Doctor of Nursing practice and is now an oncology nurse practitioner at UC San Diego. Her interests include chemotherapy, desensitization, palliative care, and global health. She is a member of the ENCODA Executive Council. Ken Lynch is an ordained chaplain through the International Fellowship of Chaplains. He is a certified grief counselor and a graduate of the Catholic Bible Institute offered through the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and Loyola Marymount University, Los Angeles. For the last eight years, he has facilitated a grief group through Our Lady of the Assumption Catholic Church in Ventura, California. He is also a partner of the law offices of Kraftchak and Lynch. Today, we discuss palliative care, end-of-life planning, and grief. So thank you so much, Dallas and Ken, for joining me today. Um, I'm so excited to have you on the PQI podcast. But to start out, will you both introduce yourself to our listeners and tell me about um, your background and your, your current roles? And we'll start with Dallas. Thanks for having me. Um, so my name is Dallas Lowry. I'm an oncology certified nurse and I have been for the last seven years. Um, in that role, I have worked at a you know, tertiary academic medical center at the bedside of some of the country's sickest cancer patients. Um, lots of times this has put me kind of at the forefront to end of life care as well. I recently embarked on a journey of graduate school. So I graduated with my doctor of nursing practice and I will be moving into my next career as an oncology nurse practitioner. Um, so that's a little bit of my background of work and what I do for a living. Congratulations on that. That's quite, that's quite the endeavor. So awesome accomplishment there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so my name is, is, is Ken Lynch. I, I originally trained as an attorney and I have a, I worked in the uh, law practice for about 40 years. Uh, oh. And then I began to move more towards into uh, dealing with uh, theological issues and helping people. So I became an ordained chaplain. Um, and I'm also a certified grief counselor. Um, and I've been working in the grief field for about the last eight years, uh, mostly helping uh, people deal with the aftermath of, of grief. The church in itself, I think, is very good uh, in accompanying people up to the grave. Um, and uh, in terms of, for example, um, uh, you know, various funeral rites and things like that in the Catholic church, it's the mass of the resurrection and rosaries and things like that. Um, but I think that uh, the church, as well as our society, sort of falls short and dealing with what happens after that, the grief impact of that. So I've been taking on that role uh, as a grief counselor and helping people deal with the loss. Okay, thank you. That's so interesting. It's, it's great work. It's so important. Um, I know just, just as an aside, my father-in-law passed away. Um, it's been probably about nine years ago. And my mother-in-law kind of discovered the same thing and they had a program um, at her church called Grief Share and she went through it and then now she's on the other side and, and helping others through it too. But it just, 
she was had lots of time to prepare, but was definitely not prepared even at the end. So yeah, I, I think even though you're dealing with long illnesses, you, you know, and you know the end is coming, you're not really prepared when the death actually occurs. And and what do you do? And so a lot of a lot of the questions that I get uh, is, am I doing this correctly? You know, am I yeah. grieving correctly? You know, I have all these feelings, and you, you know, you have this entire tangled web of emotions when somebody dies and you know there's all emotions that we felt before each you know individual emotion is just that when you're dealing with grief they all come at once and they can be exceptionally overwhelming and so how do you navigate through that yes and that leads us um, into kind of my first topic i wanted to talk to you too about and that is um, in america i know in talking with you it's been said that we don't really know how to die um, we don't have a death literature culture so can you talk to us more about that problem? Um, yeah, I'll go. So, so you know, we say the words death, you know, dying and, and dead uh, all the time, you know, as long as we're not talking about, actually talking about a person who died, you know, we say things like, he or she is drop dead gorgeous, or uh, I'm dying to spend time you with you, or the food was to die for, or, um, you know, that homily was so bad, I wanted to die during the service. Um, so, and death is a very present element. I, I think in our, uh, in our culture, we see it on entertainment, on TV shows and movies, and it's very present, for example, in video games. You know, but we're very much removed from death when we see it as entertainment. And to a certain extent, I think it sort of desensitizes us to death and how we view it in our culture. And so there's really no preparation for understanding those feelings and how we are to aggress grief in our own lives with dealing with the death of a loved one. Um, you know, and I think we know, at least on a very organic level, that when we enter into a relationship with anyone, uh, at some point, somebody in that relationship will leave. And in a long-term relation, that departure is often by death. And as a society, you know, we do prepare estate plans. Uh, you know, we buy life insurance and things like that. But it's as we were just talking about, it's very difficult to prepare uh, emotionally in advance for death. But once we are presented with it, you know, how do we address it? And so we don't talk about death because it's an uncomfortable subject. Uh, but the harsh reality is we are all going to die. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I was just going to kind of segue into that topic too, is that, you know, I've known Ken my whole life. I've met Ginger and Kevin just via Zoom one other time and um, likely have never met anyone tuning into this podcast. And yet we all have something so profound in common that we will all experience. And that is that we will ultimately all one day die. And I think when we talk about having a death illiterate culture, we talk about, you know, health, health literacy and how people understand their vital signs or their blood pressure and their lab values. And yet we don't have a death literate culture where people don't know how to plan and don't know what to expect. And I think some of this is at the hand of maybe technology and science that has pushed us to the brink and the edge of testing our limits of immortality and um, you know, religion, some religions can play into that immortality aspect either. And so even though it's something that every single one of us is going to encounter and every single person that we love is going to encounter, it is still so taboo and not dealt with on a daily basis like 
our meals and our taxes and our commute to work. And so um, I think that is what, you know, I would say we don't know how to die in America. And the cost of it is an entirely different topic, the cost of dying in America. But we don't know how and we're still kind of running away from it. Um, And so that's part of why we wanted to do this kind of interesting segment um, to talk about the finality of life and the grief associated with existing as a human being that is mortal, whether you are touched by cancer or, or not. Yes, no, I think that's a really good point. Um, I think even personally, like I have a very strong, a strong faith, but even, even with that, you get to talking too much about death and dying and it's kind of like, oh, like, let's just scratch the surface there. Let's not go, go too far in. Um, so you just mentioned grief. Will you all talk to me more about the journey of grief? Um, and in that also living with cancer and grieving the loss of help from a cancer diagnosis. So not just necessarily grieving um, death as it is, but you are, I mean, there's a lot of loss that comes with a cancer diagnosis. It, you know, I think that, you know, like sort of the lawyer aspect of me you know, comes in when we're talking about terms and how we define those terms. So, um, you know, we have, I think, a, you know, clinical and non-clinical definitions of grief. Uh, from a clinical standpoint, grief is the emotional response to a break in an attachment. And, and that attachment can be to a, uh, to a person, to an object, to a dream, And the deeper the attachment, the more complex the grief is going to be. And we have different types of losses, you know, in dealing with that. We have material losses, role losses, such as very importantly, when we're talking about cancer, that loss is the loss of one's health, and we grieve that. So the person who's been diagnosed with cancer immediately goes into a grief cycle where they're grieving the loss of that health and, you know, what's impending for them on the future. Um, Uh, You know, we're also talking about relationship losses, you know, and that's the loss that the family feels after the diagnosis, because again, their grief period starts in a long-term illness once that diagnosis is made. We're also talking about the loss of a dream, which we talked to is about a psychic loss or a systemic loss. We have a loss of faith in the system. Very often we see this in terms of the church or our government or our legal system, you know, if we're dealing, for example, with a violent death or something like that. You know, and today we're really talking more about a, uh, the loss of a loved one. So uh, I think in terms of the, um, uh, the, the non-clinical definition of grief, what we're talking about um, is, is, is really uh, the loss of a, um, uh, grief is the price we pay for loving somebody. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that in that's, and I think that's easier for people to understand is that grief is very relationship driven. And, um, you know, for example, you wouldn't be, you, we don't grieve the deaths of those people oftentimes we see on the news because we have no relationship with them. Um, but grief is really the price we pay for loving. And, and the problem that we have with grief is that love never dies you can learn to deal with grief and its intensity will will lessen over time uh, if you learn to grieve and and that healing comes through that grieving process. But a big part of that is experience the emotions of grief and not repressing them. Yes. And Dallas, do you have anything to add? 
Yeah, you know, my I have grieved the loss of a loved one in my life um, more times than I would like, but I also grieve um, as a provider, as a yeah. provider of uh, oncology patients and not, you know, not my patients whom only pass away, but also my patients who are just diagnosed and who will be absolutely fine because now they are being burdened with this life altering event that can change the trajectory of all of their dreams like Ken talked about. And in, in my world, we, as a, you know, practitioner mm -hmm. um, amongst my colleagues, we talk a lot about compounded grief where, um, you know, maybe to the naked eye, it looks like burnout in a healthcare provider. But um, we talk about how what we see every day impacts us as human beings and we're fine, we're fine, we're fine, we're fine. And then a commercial on the radio about Skittles makes us cry for no reason. And um, this kind of disenfranchised and compounded grief is also something I think is important to talk about. And, you know, in healthcare, we see people um, act out because they're experiencing something incredibly traumatic in the hospital setting, in the clinic setting. And I just always go back to that's grief, that's grief, that's grief over and over and over again. And I think that putting a name to it, which is something that Ken has helped me do and has helped numerous other people do, mm -hmm. putting a name to all of these feelings as grief and how complicated it is, is just really helpful in processing through a cancer diagnosis, being next to somebody with a cancer di diagnosis. And as the, you know, cancer trajectory moves forward through survivorship or other, I think it's just important to know that you are grieving. Yes. So I know you've both talked about just kind of acknowledging those feelings and, and not repressing them. But can you talk to me more about what the solution, um, kind of what, what this looks like for people? So I know palliative care is involved on the patient side and maybe tell us, you know, how that differs from hospice, if it does differ, what, what the two of those look like and how it relates to oncology. And then you both brought up um, healthcare providers as well. So I would be interested too, on the, the other side, just if you have ways that healthcare providers can specifically deal with grief too. Yeah. There's I, a lot okay. there. <laughs> okay. So I'll speak to, um, I'll speak to the palliative care hospice okay. conversation, and then I'm going to let Ken maybe talk about grief tools for providers if possible. So I, th we have this wonderful solution in healthcare to everything from symptom management to spiritual symptom management, and it's called palliative care. And a lot of people don't realize that the difference between palliative care and hospice is great. And they kind of put them in the same bucket and are afraid of palliative care because the definition of hospice is a terminal diagnosis with likely six months of life left or less. Palliative care is for everybody. Um, if you are receiving hospice care, you are very much receiving care that palliates symptoms. And that means just treating everything from pain, anxiety, shortness of breath, um, neuropathy, depression, um, 
fatigue, restlessness, and then the psychosocial and spiritual aspects of it too, touching on legacy making and grief and bereavement of the family that extends into much more than just the person that's living with a chronic illness. And so, you know, the World Health Organization defines palliative care as an approach that improves the quality of life and their, of patients and their families. Um, for patients that are facing life-threatening illnesses. And not all of these have to be immediately or imminently terminal. And so palliative care is really brings us back to where medicine started as healers. You know, when we didn't know all the answers, it didn't have all the medicines. Um, we were doing whatever we could in our wheelhouse to care for whole persons. And that's kind of where palliative care is moving today is into this realm of treating the mind, body, and spirit. And so it's one of the fastest growing specialties in the country just because there's so much room for it to grow and such a need for it. Um, unfortunately, we don't yet have the Medicare incentives to entirely back up, for example, an outpatient palliative care practice standalone clinic, which right. I think we'll see in our lifetime um, in the next few decades is just an explosion of palliative care because it's just going to make us happier, healthier individuals. And the seminal studies in palliative care show, showed that not only did it improve quality of life, but early implementation of palliative and hospice can actually lengthen your life too. And so if there's any way we can make people less afraid of palliative care, um, you know, I think that it would make a massive, massive difference in learning how to accept the dying process and the grief that goes with it. It sounds like something we need to start advocating for. Well, and that kind of, I think that kind of ties in because I think, you know, the real approach in terms of dealing with grief, not only with the patient, but with the family really arises out of communication and that people really need to be able to communicate with one another. And it's difficult in a family who has poor communication skills, you know, in terms of being able to really talk about what's going on, again, because that's one of those unmentionable things we don't like to talk about. And, and grief is so, you know, so personally unique. And, and again, as I said before, because it's relationship driven, um, and, the, and your relationship with the person who is in the process of dying or is dead uh, was unique. So that grief itself will be unique. And you really see this very oftentimes in families. And Ginger, I don't know if you noticed this with the death of your father, but families grieve you uniquely so that although everybody is experiencing the loss of the same person, the manner in which they approach that loss is going to be different. And so one of the things that's super important, I think, is that everybody be respectful of how everybody else grieves, you know, knowing that everybody's going to grieve differently and being able to talk about that. And grief can involve physical exhaustion, confusion, disassociation, disorientation. It can have temporary memory loss. Um, so for a lot of people, it feels like they're going crazy. Um, and these are, again, these are all emotions with which we are familiar, but because they come all at once, they can be, you know, really, really overwhelming. Um, and, you know, I think that, you know, again, that in terms of, of dealing with that, the big key to that is communication and being able to say, I'm feeling this way, 
or anything else. The other way is the other thing that I think is extremely important in dealing with grief is processing the emotions that are associated with grief. So I tell my people in my group, if you feel like screaming, scream. You know, if you feel like crying, cry. Don't repress those emotions. I mean, we have to be somewhat socially responsible in how we do this. So if you start screaming, you know, you, you, are you going to scare the neighbors that you know, maybe somebody's <laughs> trying to kill you or something? So what I suggest is like maybe if you're in your car and you're driving along, scream in your car as you're driving down the freeway because nobody can hear you. And, it's, and it makes it a little bit... Uh, easier to deal with that, just to get those emotions out. Because the problem with repressing emotions, especially those emotions who want to get out, they are going to get out and they come out in, in different forms. You know, perhaps they come out uh, as a disproportionate response to a situation such as, you know, extreme anger over something that's very minor. On the very worst end, and Dallas and I have talked about this, a lot of times these emotions come out as disease. Okay. Yes. Uh, and so, uh, it, you know, it comes out in various forms. Worst part can come out in cancer. Um, you know, I've seen this with people who repress emotions. And I think that there's clinical uh, information that supports that, that thought is that if you internalize all this stuff for a period of time, it's going to be problematic for you. Um, so, you know, again, so communication, processing those emotions, uh, dealing with that. Um, um, it, you know, talking, and, and the other thing too, I think a lot of times is talking about the loved one. Uh, if you're dealing with a post-death situation, if you're talking with somebody who is in, you know, who's just been diagnosed with cancer, it's really talking about them in terms of how I see my role as chaplain. It's talking with them, getting to know them, hearing their story, and those things that perhaps that, you know, they're in their lives that they would like to change, and maybe there's still time to change those things you know, um, reaching resolution with people, um, you know, again, communicating with those people with perhaps with whom they had a problem, knowing that that opportunity to reconcile if that's what they want to do uh, will be gone once they, once they died. And then the same problem is with the family. You know, sometimes very often you're dealing with a family where there's a lot of anger uh, at the person who's dying and you know, they're, they're, people are conflicted in these emotions. They, you know, they feel bad that the person is dying, or, uh, but, but at the same time, there's a lot of anger. Uh, and so how to deal with that? Again, the, the key there is uh, communication. Um, and then I think too, you, you know, and, and Dallas mentioned this too, is that, you know, grief is not a linear process. You know, you don't move from point A to point B to point C as you're going through grief, which I think a lot of people don't realize. And so oftentimes you have something that, you know, that triggers a grief response. And we, we call this being ambushed by grief, where there's a, a situation and a social situation in which you find yourself, or maybe there's a smell or a song or something like that that triggers a grief response. And so again, how do you deal with that is you communicate it, you feel the emotions, you allow the emotions to pass. And I, I kind of liken it sometimes as a wave, you know, allowing that wave to wash over you. Because if you've ever been to the beach and you try and stand up to the wave, the wave is going to knock you down. Yeah. And the only way to deal with the wave is let the wave pass over you. You know, realize that joy in your life will return. Joy is a decisional emotion. It can be the act of a will. Uh, happiness, which I distinguish as a transitory emotion that comes and 
comes and goes. You know, it lasts as long as the last bite of your ice cream cone, or, mm -hmm. or if you've bought a new car, it's until you have to make that first new car payment, you know, <laughs> or something yeah. like that. But so, you know, joy is decisional. You can choose to be joyful um, in how you approach every day. For example, if the day outside is dark and gray and overcast and maybe not a particularly attractive day, uh, you can focus on that and say, oh, this is going to be a bad day. Well, you know, now you've pre-programmed yourself to having a bad day, you know, or if you say, you know, this is, you know, still it's gray, it's overcast, it's going to be a good day, then for you, it will be a good day. And, and I think that when you're dealing in grief, you have to look for that. You have to understand there are going to be bad days, um, but they're also going to be good days. And you have to enjoy the good days when they come and deal with the bad days when they, when they come. Uh, and the other thing too, is I think that, um, and, and this is, I, I think, super important, is living a life of gratitude. Yeah. Um, and, and instead of approaching uh, the loss of a loved one from a pace of, place of loss and anger and sadness, is to approach that from a place, place of gratitude, having gratitude for the amount of time this person was in your life, gratitude for the love you shared, um, even though their time in your life may be very short such as dealing with a family who's lost a child in the NICU, you know, some, something where, where you're still grateful for that love you shared. It may have been a very short period of time. It may have been very intense, but that love that you shared was a gift yeah. um, and acknowledging that gift. And I think that that really changes your orientation to grief when you approach it that way. No, I think that too, those are both great points for all of life, not only grief and no, true. finding joy and, and living a life of gratitude every day. I think at any time of life, those are, I mean, so much more important during grief, but those are important yeah. things to remember or to follow. Our, our world might be a lot more pleasant place right now if we all, if we all enacted those things. Well, you know, there's a lot of people are just, you know, I think it's choosing, you know, we all have two choices in life. We, we can either live lives of anger and bitterness about the things that occur to us, or we can choose to say, you know, from a, from a chaplain point of view, you know, we can see these are the things that God has placed before me and how do I deal with these and move forward in my life, um, as opposed to just being embittered and angry. Um, and, and again, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in how you deal with people. You know, a, a, a friendly hello to somebody can make their day yeah. because none of us know what everybody else is struggling with in their lives and being, being thoughtful and present and, and um, interested in people and communicating with them and interacting with them, even on a very minimal level can make a huge difference in somebody's life. So true, so true. And do you too, and I know, I, I think I know what the answer will be because I know you're a certified grief counselor and Dallas recommended you. So do you all recommend um, kind of formal counseling for people too, um, both providers and for loved ones or patients? You know, a lot of the hospice organizations have grief programs. Okay. Um, and I think, you know, there's one here in the area where, where Dallas and I live, uh, Livingston Memorial, I don't know just to say a name, <clears throat> they have a very good grief program. A lot of churches have grief programs. Um, the hospice organizations typically run more secular programs. The churches obviously run more, more religious oriented programs. And it really depends on, you know, on how you want to, on, on your 
personal orientation. If you're a person of faith, well, then maybe you should seek, you know, grief counseling within the context of a religious orientation. If you're not a faith-based person, you know, maybe it is important for you to seek uh, uh, you know, some sort of a secular group that allows you to express that. But I think it's really important to find a group and talk about it. Because again, you know, talking about things, communicating with other people, I, I think that as generally as people, we're built for community. And yeah. this is the way, you know, we interrelate with other people is by expressing these things. And it's, you know, we're not you know, we're not living in a little shell. You know, I think the John Dunn poem, No Man is an Island, entire of to himself is really real. You, yeah. you know, we're not little islands. You know, we are an integrated society and it's very helpful. And Dallas, do you have more thoughts on this? And I know even on an action plan, in addition to counseling, if, if you know. Yeah. So a few points, a few points on counseling, you know, there is a, there is a fine line between when you can define something as grief related to a acute life stressor and when it becomes uh, chronic and turns into more of a depression. And at that point, I absolutely would extend the invitation for somebody to see counseling. Um, but as far as you know, an action plan and, and what it looks like, because we've talked about the fact that we are mortal people and that life will end what can we do to plan for this end? And, you know, I say, think about it early and often. And somebody else might say to me, well, it's easy for you to say because you're young and healthy and you have maybe your whole life ahead of you. And that exactly drives home my point is that we should be making these decisions at a time where we have all of our, you know, sound mind and our emotions in check and we've really looked at what we want for our end of life. And that might include who we're surrounded by and how we even decide to have a funeral or go back into the earth or things like that. And it shouldn't be a luxury that not everybody has time to plan for because we should just be talking about it. I think that advanced directives, which are the legal documents that allow you to address what kind of things you want done should you not be able to make decisions for yourself or how long you want artificial nutrition or do you want CPR or not are things that we can be talking about soon. And there's even programs set in place like death over dinner to talk about how this should just be a colloquial community discussion and it shouldn't be scary. And, you know, lastly, on top of supporting each other, especially as oncology patients whom I know often enter groups and providers who um, do whatever they can to honor their patients, those that are living and those that have passed away. Um, this idea that if we think about death, we tend to honor life more. And so my parting kind of idea is um, there's this app and I don't, I'm, this is not a promotion. I'm not a part of it. It's just something that has helped me and that I've um, passed on to other people, but it's called We Croak and it's got a frog on it, which is kind of funny because we're not scary people who think about these things. And it's based in the Bhutanese philosophy that if you talk about or think about death five times a day, 
you're going to be a happier person. And the, you know, research has shown that Bhutan is one of the happiest countries in the world. And so it's just kind of interesting that this taboo subject that we refuse to talk about, maybe it's just something that we should be doing all the time. Yes, no, that's a great point too. I think when you think about it, you definitely, it makes you change how, what you're doing in the day and what's important and what maybe is not so important. Um, so thank you, That's that's been great. And I don't know if you have anything to add about the action plan, Ken. Um, and then I, I have two final questions for both of you. Um, you, you know, D uh, Dallas and I have talked about this before, and there is a philosophy um, that's very, very old called memento mori. Um, and that really, again, is thinking about death. And we see this in the church, typically during Lent, you know, where they talk mm -hmm. about you are dust and to dust you will return. And so the notion is to really think about that. And I think Dallas is absolutely right. If we think about the fact that we are going to die, and depending upon your religious orientation, if you have one, uh, is that our time on this earth is limited. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we really need to try and do as much good as we can while we are here. And if we think about sort of the end time, and we think about that as uh, you know, terminating our physical existence on, on this earth, uh, then what we have to accomplish here is limited. So we have to make the best of of what we're doing. So thinking about that, I, I do believe, uh, leads to a more intense focus on life. Yeah. Um, and, and again, in our culture, we, we don't do that because we see death as having an entertainment value um, as opposed to, um, you, you know, really how, you know, how, how to be the best people we can possibly be and live the best lives we can possibly live and really loving one another. Yes. So, so important. Again, especially in this time, I just feel like we all could use a dose of that for sure. Yeah. Um, and then the final couple questions is we ask every guest on the PQI podcast. So I'll direct the first one at Dallas. Um, I know you have seen the ENCODA positive quality interventions that PQI resource. Um, so what value do you see in that resource for the oncology um, team? So pharmacists, nursing, the team. Yeah, so I think that the PQI tool is stellar. It's like a quick breakdown of a particular drug, its side effects, um, how it's administered, what to look for, how to treat these side effects. And I think it's really invaluable for all parts of the team, um, including the patient eventually, you know, if it's, if there's pieces of it that are patient related or in, you know, normal language, that's not medical jargon. Um, yeah. I think it benefits everybody because it's just an at a glance, what do I need to know? And if problems occur, how do I fix them? So as a nurse and as a nurse practitioner that will be prescribing, um, I think it's just awesome. And I'll be taking it into my new practice. Awesome, thank you. And then I guess on the note of thinking about life and how we can best live, um, no, if there were no restrictions right now, so no travel restrictions, is there a place that each of you would like to travel most and why if so? So we'll, we'll go to Ken and then we'll come back to Dallas. Um, 
yeah, I really hadn't really thought about it, you know, in terms of, of, of where I wanted to go um, or anything, um, you know, maybe Scotland or Ireland, just because they're beautiful yeah. countries. Yeah, Sound, sounds lovely. And um, I, as much as it would be interesting to go to a new place, I would go to India. Um, I go there every year prior to COVID um, for medical missions, and it's really changed my life. Um, and just talking about the temporariness of it all and um, being having your priorities kind of re-stratified based on visiting a country that, you know, has a little bit, you know, has less money and resources than the United States. It's a reminder of this gratitude idea that we've talked about. And also we have a lot to learn from these countries mm -hmm. being too far advanced in our own society um, poses its own problems. And um, so I would go back to India and then I'd go to Italy again. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love all of those. That's great. Well, thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, you've made a, a hard subject, I think really, really interesting and not quite as hard when, when we do all the things that you talk about. So thank you. And I really appreciate both of you taking the time out of your day today. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. We know that this can be scary and controversial and um, we just kind of challenge and want to support anybody in embarking on this conversation as well. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dallas and Ken. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple and remember to subscribe. You can listen on our website at encoda.org. That's N-C-O-D-A dot org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would also like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible. And we hope you join us next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.